Hello and welcome to episode four of What We've Learned, a weekly podcast where we discuss what we've learned. The we being myself, Steve Kemish, and my friend, colleague, esteemed peer, Shane Redding. Hello, Shane. Hello, Steve. Let's kick off then, Shane. How's your week been? Interesting. Um, I think one question has dominated more than anything else this week for me, from my clients, from colleagues in the industry. And that question is, should we be cutting the marketing budget or should we be continuing to spend? What about Mm. you? Yeah, interesting. Should we hold our nerve? Um, It's a really interesting pertinent topic for us as well. I have to say in, in the world that we inhabit with the clients we've been working with, as we've mentioned on other episodes, a lot of them in fairly buoyant markets. So it, it's the other way around of how do we allocate the budget that we've got and, and use it effectively. But certainly, I think more broadly, we're seeing organisations that have got over that initial shock and fear of what's this new world looking like to, OK, if we're bedding in, how long is that gap? What's that chasm we have to cross? And as you say, do do we do we do we cut or do we go out there all guns blazing? So one of the most helpful things that I saw, in fact, was from last week's uh, guest, Ruth Connor, reposted on LinkedIn, Roberto Rivero's post with evidence on showing that brands who through the last recession continued to communicate and spend during the downturn and they came back to the market faster than their competitors and interestingly enough stronger Um, and I'm going to put that link in um, the end of this podcast so people can have a click and look at that but I think that's a topic for another day Um, really lots to talk about there. Yeah, it's, it's funny enough, actually, it's very similar to a post that leads us on in a minute to um, guest speaker for the day, Paul Cash. Paul posted something uh, a couple of weeks ago that was of a very similar vein, uh, equally, or post it up onto, onto LinkedIn. And if you want to have a look on wwlpodcast.co.uk, where you can find us, um, that talked about 2008 recession and then updated information and how actually, though very similar, Shane, those brands that hold their nerve, that do continue to do the right kind of marketing and advertising and that's as we've talked about in the past may not be the same as it was a few weeks ago it's appropriateness for time and environment um, going hell for leather for lead generation may not be the right thing to do but just reminding people you're there almost Shane it feels a little bit like we're nurturing trying to keep in touch with people so they don't forget us for when we do return to market in a way that also Ruth mentioned in a previous episode Yes, I'm really looking forward to hearing what Paul's got to say because his specialty is storytelling. And I think it's one of the things that we should all be doing um, at the current time. So really looking forward to hearing what he's got to say. Yeah, indeed. Well, let's wheel him out. And that's the first question I actually started with this week when I spoke to him was actually what is storytelling and what does it mean storytelling in terms of B2B? So it's a good question, Steve. And I get asked this quite a lot because there is still a lot of myth and unknown to this concept of storytelling specifically within business it means three things to me on a on a personal level one it's a massive commitment to shift the narrative away from talking about products to talking about customers and when i talk about customers it could be employees customers investors etc it's about making sure that they can see themselves in the stories that you're trying to sell and to tell. And finally, and this is probably the most important bit, it's about connecting 
with them on an emotional level by showing you have understanding and empathy and get the kind of the challenges, issues and ambitions and hopes that they have. And that's the big departure in B2B, um, trying to find these emotional connections to feel honest and authentic and real and not the ones that kind of, you know, smack of insincerity just because there's kind of an emotional angle to pull. So it's definitely an interesting space. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. Um, and actually, for some people, uh, they may well have spilt their coffee, Paul, because you use the word emotion twice when it comes to B2B. But, Ouch. you know, you, you're well known for talking about this rightly. Is Why don't B2B brands use and think about emotion more, perhaps, than our consumer cousins, given the evidence that says actually a lot of decision making in businesses is quite irrational, is quite emotional. Why is there that disconnect between our marketing and communication and, and how people behave? Yeah, it saddens me a lot actually steve that the state of b2b marketing is still so in the dark ages when it comes to trying to embrace things like brand and storytelling but i go back to a a, a lunch that I was having with um an ex-client of mine who was a senior director at hewlett packard and she basically said to me paul do you know what although i'm a senior marketing director i'm a glorified lever puller and what she meant by that was that she had a set of marketing levers, everything from PPC and SEO and ABM and intent data and campaigns, et cetera. And her role was to pull those levers in some kind of magical formula every quarter to spit out a better result. And the business that she worked for would always have really high ambitions and expectations of what marketing would need to achieve. And she was forever trying to recalibrate and readjust and add a new lever into her kind of um, uh, marketing mix to try and squeeze out that incremental type of growth. And it saddened me because I could see the frustration in her eyes that marketing had been dumbed down to something so operational. And yet there's a whole new door with a whole other set of levers, which are around brand and emotion and storytelling and empathy that if you get those levers working well, they can have a transformational, not incremental impact on your business. And more to the point, they can absolutely move the dial on those operational levers that you're trying to pull as well. Yet in B2B, we seem so scared of opening that door to those fluffy things called brand and storytelling and emotion. Yet deep down, we know these things work. And so I definitely feel we're in a moment right now, especially within Corona, um, and the whole pandemic that people have really questioned the value of that traditional speeds and feeds functional B2B marketing, because as we've seen, the role of empathy, the role of gesture-based communications, all the implicit type of marketing that seems to be very vogue at the moment is proven to be a real win. And so those companies that who have invested in their brand in recent years have a strong sense of purpose, have been able to communicate in a much more genuine, authentic way than the other companies who have, you know, gone down the traditional speeds and feeds route. So it's, it's been really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting theme, actually, of, of this podcast on other episodes is, is how the world has, of course, changed very rapidly. But what you've just said there, I think it's really interesting, is that that appetite for business as usual lead generation based marketing that are, for me, at least, is probably a lot of why 
as you've explained, organisations default to that set of levers. Now's the chance to look at that other side, to think about that storytelling and that emotional piece, because it's not appropriate to try and generate and sell as hard as perhaps we might have wanted to in the past. So is that perhaps positive then, Paul, that brands can use this time to look at how they can introduce this, this other set of levers, this other way of talking? Yeah, I think, you know, like all crisis, recessions, downturns, there's always positivity and real change as we kind of recast our ideas from the old world to the new. And so things that never seem to get traction in the old world absolutely can catapult us into, into the new world. And I'm hoping that brand and storytelling and B2B becomes something that people really focus because there's no point going back to what we did before because the world's going to be different and so i hope this moment of change is a real inspiration for people to look and experiment and try new things and the way we try to break it down is there are three major genres of storytelling within the context of business what we call level one storytelling which is very much the transformational piece it's very much hearts and minds it's getting that purpose mission vision right it's being able to tell that big brand level story to win over your employees to let the world kind of know what you stand for and to to help move markets towards the way you see the world and we see that kind of storytelling happening through brand campaigns advertising you know culture change management etc and these can be a really powerful transformational tool level two storytelling is far more kind of campaign based so this is very much uh, a real melting pot, I think, within B2B at the moment, which is helping clients take some really good stuff around their brand and the emotion around their brand and building that into more traditional campaign um, mechanics. So again, that stretch between thought leadership and content and uh, ABM and getting closer to customers and trying to build more emotional kind of narratives in order to drive some kind of metric, whether it's a subscription, a download, a bum on seat or whatever. And again, we're seeing that emerge as something that we're calling brand gen. So it's neither brand or lead generation, but it's kind of fusion of the two. And I think that's quite an exciting place in B2B right now. And then the third main kind of genre is what we call level three which is very much the tactical type of storytelling so clients might have an explainer video that needs a better sense of source story being told or they've got a powerpoint presentation at a user conference and they need to weave a better story through that deck and there's lots of that tactical storytelling happening within b2b less so the kind of the level one transformational stuff but definitely the kind of the more campaign storytelling the level two is definite where i see more and more interest and every client needs a blend of all three in the ideal world you start with your level one but from a practical point of view i think most people start at level three interesting it almost feels like a pyramid of, the, of that structure that at the top is that level one and, and trying to tell the story that emotional aspect of setting your stall out i presume that also then trickles down paul if you get that right that those themes what you stand for can be then used at a campaign level and even at a tactical level and must just breed a consistency of voice as well. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, we, we work hard to really get to this new truth that we feel is ever-present and ever-growing in B2B, which is people don't just want to buy from you anymore. They want to buy into you. And if you believe in that truth, it really does change everything because you move away from that kind of functional transactional 
messaging that most brands are very familiar with and start to look at things like feelings and emotions as being the thing that really does drive decision making and there's so much evidence out there from neuroscientists behavioral scientists etc that talk about the way that we make decisions and how our brain works and in b2b it's no different than b2c people buy an emotion and they justify with fact and yet every single b2b brand out there has all the justify with fact content they could ever ever need but they're very light on the uh, barn emotion kind of stuff. And I think that is where the massive opportunity exists for B2B companies, because today I think there's probably less than 10% of business brands out there who have a really good level one story to tell or embrace the context of emotion and storytelling in their business. And, you know, if music is the language of love, then storytelling definitely is the language of emotion. And so if you believe that that is a, an interesting new lever to be able to start to pull then it really does take you down a, a different route which is very educational it's far more interesting and helps us take b2b marketing somewhere new yeah it's interesting <coughs> also, i guess it gives you the chance paul to, to stand out without having to bolt on new features and benefits where my very simplistic view on a lot of b2b marketing <coughs> is arguably one is competing with with lots of other products or services from other competitors that have fundamentally the same buttons the same aspects to them this must give you a completely new arc of way of talking and standing your your brand out that it doesn't then default to those features and benefits or perhaps a more dangerous place where the only differentiator is price you've got that more intangible opportunity yeah absolutely we we talk about this idea now that when we talk about level one storytelling the raw the raw ingredients in a good story is this sense of purpose mission and vision Yet most companies treat purpose, mission, and vision as being the story themselves. And it's like baking a cake. You know, in B2B, we're really good at baking what looks to be amazing cakes. And then our business decision makers and buyers bite into them and they spit them out because we forgot to put the sugar in. Okay, so I think that was absolutely fascinating hearing from Paul, and I particularly like the baking analogy. I think lots of us are baking in this lockdown, but I'm interested to hear from you, Steve, in terms of thinking about the forgotten ingredients to B2B brands. Why do we sometimes get it wrong? Yeah, it's a really, Shane, Paul is always fascinating to listen to. He's so passionate about B2B and the storytelling is such an obvious one in any time and environment. But as you said, particularly now is the chance to think about how do you, you say the right things that, that humanise your brand, or as he talks about very eloquently when he talks longer about this subject, is around standing out, having a, the right kind of personality, um, helping people and having some kind of identity and be likeable, I think was a really strong word for Paul. So I think it's back to our basics again. Um, Paul's market, where he operates a lot, similar to, to Junction, where we work, is in technology and, and product-based markets, where it's really easy, as you know, Shane, to just default to features and benefits. And I think that's his analogy for me with that sugar, is look, you can have a product that looks very similar on the shelf to the rest in that cake store, but yours, the taste of it, how do you make it stand out? Well, yes, of course, when people taste it, but can you do other things that attract people to it in the first instance? And that's what I think is a really interesting thread for any business marketer and indeed broader marketer. It doesn't matter really what operate, where you operate is thinking about, well, how do I make my product service stand out on the shelf when arguably there are lots of others that may look to that casual buyer identical before they 
before they bite, before they take that taste. So spending some time on that and thinking about it and doing your research and really getting under the, the skin of the customer, the needs and their wants, particularly because they're different at the moment. And I know I think that you also went on to ask Paul about some real practical takeaways as well. Yeah, exactly. Storytelling, as Paul's articulated, it's easy for us to understand, but how does one get started with it? I think it does link back, interestingly, Shane, to an earlier episode where we talked about those housekeeping tasks. And one of them is to look at your data, start to better understand, well, if you're going to tell a story, who's your audience? Who are you trying to tell it to? So some really interesting thoughts from Paul, where I started again on, okay, if we're interested in this, Paul, what are the practical thoughts? How do we get started with storytelling? So I think the first part of this is, a real shift in focus away from products to to customers now it sounds so trite when you say it because what brand doesn't focus on their customers but in b2b we talk about customers a lot but revert to products in most of our communications so the first part of this is getting a real sense and understanding of who your audience is what are their pains what are their issues what are their challenges what are their need states and these need states change all the time so this is where being culturally relevant and sensitive to the times we're living in gives a real opportunity so you know right now your audience are all working from home most of them have got cabin fever um, these present interesting ways to be able to build micro stories to connect with with your customers around um, your products etc so definitely that kind of deep dive to customers whether it's social listening whether it's your sales guys feeding information into you whether it's kind of focus groups or market research but really getting close to your customers and not just building these fairly functional personas but really building these emotional driven personas yeah almost feels like that those personas need different headings that they're kind of their wants their fears their values versus their job role that the more right brain versus left brain classic persona of Steve works as operations director. He reads his materials here. We need things like Steve's worried about this. Steve sees and feels and cares about these things. So it's classic research, Paul, that um, marketers are at least used to. But I guess we also need to be careful that we're not working on assumption or out of date thinking. Hence that almost agility, as you said, those micro stories that may well evolve quite quickly, particularly in an environment like this where we are on the COVID-19 lockdown that the story you might have come up with a couple of months ago might be very different to the one you need to play now yeah for sure and i think you know in any marketplace when you're talking to any audience whether it's a cfo an it director the fleet a fleet manager their need states and i use this word need states um because it's not about trying to tap into their wants you know you've got to make your product really needed (laughs) by them as individuals. And the only way you're gonna do that is not talking necessarily about your product, but talking about the needs that they have as individuals and really trying to focus in on the storylines that are important to them at this moment in time. And you know, this is the challenge with all marketing as we get towards being able to leverage the automation tools we've got in place, which is the real time ability to be able to contextually deliver micro storylines to people that allow you to be able to have a conversation around your products and services. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that technology is going to allow us to get better at that over time. And, and so we, once we've got that, so we've got the research, we start to build these stories. Where does it then wed back to those levers that you talked about before, where we've got those routes to market? I presume one can use the essence of this stuff 
so that you've got this joined up rather than it being stories are over here and kind of business as usual <laughs> marketing's over there. The aim, I guess, is to bring the two together. So they're, they're harmonizing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, anecdotally, I'll tell you that we tend to see a 50% increase when we lead with a creative emotional storyline for a client campaign than if we lead or when they've led traditionally with a more functional. So, um, there is a massive delta in the effectiveness of emotional selling and storytelling when it comes to um, the level two stuff we talked about, the campaign stuff. And if clients have not done it before, I would urge them to at least try an experiment because whether you're, you buy into this whole kind of funnel approach, this you know tofu, mofu, bofu. So the real value of emotional driven storytelling is definitely in the top of funnel, building real preference and desire for who you are as a business. You know, based on the, the data that says buyers are, you know, anywhere between 60 and 70% in their buying journey before they even engage with you as a brand, then they are building impressions and perceptions of who you are out there in a world that you can control because you can be putting out content and stories that make them feel positive towards your business. And we've seen from Gartner recently that the, the number of people involved in a business-to-business buying decision has gone from just over five people to just over 10. So we definitely are looking at security in terms of numbers of people making a decision. Now, anybody who's engaged in a B2B sales process would know that if there are 10 people involved in that decision, you're rarely going to get to meet any more than three of them. So there are seven people out there who have an influence in your sales cycle that you're never going to get to meet. So how are you influencing them? So this really does become where brand and storytelling, because they're not going to read a white paper about your business and make an assumption from that. They're too busy. They're going to want to be able to go onto a website, watch a piece of video content, get an impression of who you are, what you stand for, and that will guide their decision-making. And so brand is so much more important in business-to-business marketing than it's ever been before because of the things that are happening from a, a very strategic level within clients. You know, bigger buying groups, security in numbers. We're seeing the shift towards SaaS business models where the disintermediation of the sales guy has happened over a period of time. The sales guy in the old world was the person who would go in and build those emotional connections. Marketing was left to kind of build the, the functional content to support them. Now, in the absence of that, emotional selling being done by a salesperson the role of a website a brand uh, key content thought leadership has to do that brand selling role and so it's more important than ever for SaaS businesses to be able to um, invest in this kind of stuff as well well more broad I guess given any business at the moment has to work in that more remote way what, what's really fascinating about what you've just said is that actually you this is not inventing something new. This is recognizing that there's a big gap in the sales and marketing process that historically sales would have looked after that emotion that they would bring to the meeting, to the party in, in person, over the phone, but particularly in person that marketing need to make sure that someone's owning that. And that's the perfect chance for marketing to, to tell those emotional stories and just leading back to what you said about the personas as well. Of course you've got, if it's gone from five to 10 decision makers, we've got potentially 10 different emotions 10 different ways of interpreting our story that we also need to think about. Yeah. And I would, you know, I have a real passion for wanting B2B to evolve, to take us somewhere new. So the next generation don't inherit 
the kind of the functional speeds and feeds marketing that that we kind of found ourselves. I don't want the next generation to accidentally fall into B2B. I want it to be an active choice because it's a really interesting place to, you know, cut your talent and, and do things. But we're not going to make it the place that we dream of if we carry on doing same old, same old. And last year, uh, the LinkedIn B2B Institute commissioned um, two very famous uh, researchers called uh, Les Binnett and Peter Field, who had commissioned a piece of work for the IPA a decade ago that they called the long and the short of it, which effectively looked at, I think, nearly 900 case studies of consumer brands to try and work out how much should they be spending on brand and how much should they be spending on lead generation. And when they did the B2C cut, it was a 60-40 split. So 60% needs to be spent on brand and 40% needs to be spent on lead generation. And that was if you wanted to be, you know, the category king, the market leader. So when they did the same cut on all the B2B data, it was surprising to some, unsurprising to others, that what came out of it was a very, very similar perspective, which is B2B brands, if they want to be leaders of their category, need to be spending at least 46% on brand and 54% on lead generation. Now, you ask most CMOs or marketing directors out there how much they spend on brand-related activity, and it probably doesn't get anywhere near that level. Mm. So there's definitely, you know, a so real a chance growth. of balance, Paul, as you say, is that yeah, actually absolutely. Reckon, rather than being and of course businesses need to sell right we've got to generate leads typically because that's what closes into a sale but we have got this hiatus that maybe just gives us the chance you're saying to reset to readdress the balances we do need the almost 50 50 ignoring the, the percentages of of yes we must generate leads but this is the chance to tell our brand story in a way that sets us apart but also is appropriate for our audience and our markets yeah and i think it's you know the maturing of business to business as its own industry and its own category that we definitely have to look at b2c and go well they've been around in theory a lot longer than we have and they've evolved why is it they are spending you know 60 40 on brand and lead generation why is that is b2b significantly different well yes of course there are differences and nuances and shades of gray but ultimately the same buyers don't turn up at work one day and turn off their personality I don't know where it happened or when it happened that somebody in a room said, yeah, we're selling to a business. They think and act in a logical, rational, economic way. Therefore, let's dumb everything down and just present facts, speeds and feeds. Because for 30, 40 years, that's become the modern way of, of B2B marketing. And we need to break that cycle because, as I said before, people don't do that. We buy an emotion and we justify with fact. And the neuroscience and the behavioral science all tells us that. Um, so I think it's, you know, we need to rise up as an industry. Um, we need to rise up against marketing. So it's against sales being the most powerful part of B2B organizations. There's a real chance now for marketing to be the engine of growth. We're seeing this new role created, especially within the kind of the startup scale up world where they have this now head of growth or chief growth officer. And if I'm a chief growth officer or a CMO that wants to be a chief growth officer, which is kind of the next step to the, to the CEO, Everything from culture and brand and storytelling and emotion and all the things that we know drives equity and value in an organization needs to be embraced. And, you know, I feel exciting for the future of B2B because the, the upside is massive. 
because we're operating at, I think, at only 10% of the capability of what marketing can deliver. So, Steve, we could uh, feel a little, how should we say, depressed thinking that perhaps only 10% uh, of businesses are operating in the way that they could or should be in B2B. But in your experience, Steve, have you had some amazing examples where you think that, that companies have really nailed their storytelling? Yeah, look, I, Shane, I don't think you can ever get depressed listening to Paul. He just inspires one every time I listen to him. Um, the work that he does at Rooster Punk, the work that he just generally does in the industry is so is so positive, um, a kind of a bang of the drum. Um, he is kind of right. I agree. I think th- scratching my head to think about B2B examples is harder, but there are some out there. Um, I don't think it hurts to look from other brands wider afield as well to get inspiration. And one of the points that Paul and I talked about separately was, well, how do you start to try and sell this back into your business? So having some inspiration from other industries can also help. Um, If you take somewhere like airlines, although obviously grounded a great deal of them at the moment, brands that have got some really good cases that you can have a look at as a listener, KLM, the Dutch airline, uh, WestJet, the Canadian airline, uh, one bigger than the other. So KLM, a, a big international global player. WestJet, not quite as large, but in a very, very competitive domestic space over Canada and the US. Both of them, WestJet with their Christmas Miracles, which is their annualized program, which as I'm sure you've seen, Shane, is a really, really lovely way of telling the story of, of Christmas and what it means for air travel. Um, cleverly underwritten by their sponsors on the first one they did in about 2012 and that's their annual program almost akin to those of us in the uk to the john lewis christmas advert uh, in terms of how they operate and klm have got like westjet the most important word i think for this storytelling is is the culture they have a culture of being able to do things in a way that don't feel like a a thinly stuck on plaster to the front of your business uh, and it's an interesting point shane i think is if you're going to do this storytelling it really has to be at, at one with who you are as an organisation rather than trying to commit to a story that really isn't who you are. How about you, Shane? Any examples for you that people that do already stand out in B2B? Oh, I think that's a really good point and very well made about the fact that it's it's more than product differentiation um, in a very often market where you're selling the same thing. And it is about your company culture and how you get your customers to relate to that. And one that I I really like is Grunfoss, massive organization. Maybe nobody listening to this has ever heard of them, but they produce pumps. And pumps, again, you know, pretty sort of similar or they won't be if you talk to the engineers, but could be perceived as uh, as similar. And they did some fascinating work whereby they employed gamification with fitters um, to try and make sure that they fitted the right pumps and boilers um, by involving fitters, both their own and through partners, uh, to get basically involved in a game. And so that was part of their culture. It was real involvement and trying to bring it to life and why that pump was going to be the best one for the customer. Uh, I really like that one. A bit different. And yeah, that, it's it's really not, well. It makes the point, Shane. You don't have to have cool or sexy product in the way that we often berate ourselves in B two B that we're not as cool as our consumer cousins. It's not about that. And in fact, as Paul really articulates, if you can be seen to be a brand that that's that's human, that's likable, um, actually the product's less important. That will happen. The sale will come, and and it links to something that I've strongly believed, and we've talked about in the past. Is helpful is a really powerful word. Helpful sells things. Being likeable will help you sell things. 
So if you if you focus just on the product, of course, you then have to differentiate with features and benefits or even more scary than that price is your only way of differentiating. So it does almost give us perhaps a, a completely different language and a different way of communicating our product or service, which is equally important if we're, we're running out of ways to stand out in the market. I agree, but I think also there is the opportunity to be really cool. And in the past, in terms of B2B, the one that, that I've always cited, um, JCB, privately owned business. I mean, how cool was it to set the dream for the organisation that they were going to set the new land speed record and the money that they put into that project and the airtime that they achieved with it um, was because it was a privately owned business. And you listen um, to them speak and it was basically that they could afford to do that because it was a passion and it fitted with the culture about amazing engineering, which, of course, you know, then comes to life through all the other JCB products. So you can be cool sometimes if you're brave. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's lots of different ways of standing out rather than, you know, using. And we talked about this on a previous episode where we might well have disagreed slightly, Shane. But, you know, using appropriate humour or lightheartedness, entertaining people, if it's appropriate, uh, is still a good way of, of standing out. And, and that's what Paul talks a lot about those three stages for him of storytelling. Yes, you know, the Simon Sinek, if you will, level, that level one, which is the core, the heartbeat of what you do. But if you get that right, that can that trickle down to levels two around campaigning and level three, which is tactical. But equally, you can start with some low-hanging fruit. How can your next tactical or campaign-based uh, piece have a slightly different uh, slant, a slightly different tone to it that might stand you out as long as you're true to your values and that culture again that you talked about. And again, you've just reminded me perhaps of one of my all-time favourite because it is tongue-in-cheek and having fun. And that's from uh, the webinar platform on 24 um, with their campaigns to webinars. Uh, they deliberately realised that people who were investing time and really finding out how to run webinars were getting quite geeky about it. And they sent out um, wonderful Christmas jumpers emblazoned with proud to be a webinar nerd on it, um, which were then, of course, went social and people were posting these Christmas holiday jumpers. Um, and I just love it because they, they understood their customers and they understood, you know, that, that people were proud to actually uh, be these. And then they started to get requests for them. So I, I think that's a lovely example of having a bit of fun. I'll try and get a picture and post that after our podcast so people can see what they were like. Yeah, it's a great example. And actually, that reminds me of, of Workfront, who have been for a number of years sponsored uh, the content that two comedians, Trip and Tyler, created um, email in real life, but particularly conference call in real life which is a YouTube video that I will also post on here, many of people will have seen and many people will relate to, which is all the things that go wrong in a conference call that if it was real life, you know, would be laughable. So a, a similar organisation, but taking a slightly different way of, of telling a story or, or engaging people. Uh, and I often talk about this, that I think it, we can borrow from uh, industries like stand-up comedy. So stand-up comedians will often, particularly observational ones, will make a fortune from pointing out the obvious to us. But it feels inclusive because it feels like they're talking to us because we can relate to what they're talking about. And I think that's another interesting point, Shane, perhaps for another day around if you've got this storytelling, as Paul says, how does that translate into content that talks in a language 
that the people that you're trying to communicate with, and again, his point around customer wasn't just people that buy from you. You've got employees, you've got uh, analysts, you've got partners, you've got investors, all sorts of different pockets that you might need to find the right tone of voice for once you've got that story to tell. I think that's a really good tip. And I think also at the moment, I saw a really good checklist because the world is different and actually how we communicate and what we choose to say. Um, and this checklist was put out last week by, or maybe a little bit earlier, actually, it was republished in Forbes um, by Ogilvy. And it was guidance for content, particularly on social media. It was aimed at B2C, but it's completely applicable um, to just thinking things through about what we're saying now. Um, is it the right thing to say? And I think some companies are starting to do some very good communication. I mean, I think the, the co-op ad that's running at the moment, which is sort of having a bit of fun for those of us who are stuck on Zoom calls with um, using the faces of their employees on Zoom in a very nice, inclusive way. And you immediately relate to it if you're of that demographic. Um, very nice touch. So mm. what about you, Steve? What have you? What do you think? Yeah, I, I really like that Ogilvy example, Shane, because it, 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 as you said, it may be aimed at a, a broader marketing community, but it is almost the common sense questions to think about. And it's well worth having a look at of if you're about to post out or they talk about social media, but it could be any communication. Is this right? Is this right for the audience? But is it right in the time that I'm sending this out, which is so important as, as we've talked about? And what started us doing this podcast in the first place is the world is changing very rapidly. So what may have been an appropriate tone a couple of weeks ago may not be so now or indeed what we're talking about now and the tone may need to shift as we start to go back to some level of normality as the days and the weeks move on. Speaking of which, weeks, we turn them into a week. What's your your next week looking like, Shane? Well, next week is going to be, um, I'm going to be co-hosting, chairing a stream of my very first digital only event um, for B2B marketing, Get Stacked, uh, which has always been a face-to-face uh, event held in, in London, but now they've transformed it very, very quickly into virtual only. So I've got a steep learning curve ahead of me because I have a new platform to learn um, in a number of days. And what about you, Steve? Yeah, well, interesting, Shane. I'd love to hear more about that. I'm sure we will in terms of what uh, what's moderating in a digital world like. Um, for me, actually, and it leads on quite neatly from Paul, one of the tasks I've got for this week is I, I teach, as you know, on behavioural economics in B2B. Um, and it's an area I'm just developing or redeveloping some content for a similar purpose, really. A couple of clients that want to think about emotion and what that means in their marketing and how that can be practically applied to their communication. So for me, it's a, a PowerPoint to webinar based session, but on something that I know you're as passionate as me about is, is the emotion and the behavior of, of, of how people make decisions. And indeed, whether that's changing um, right now and whether it will continue to change. Um, no more so than Paul, actually, Shane. And it's worth just saying is a, a, a double thanks to Paul for taking the time this week. But he is more passionate than probably you and I rolled into together about this subject. So really useful stuff for Paul uh, and indeed really useful stuff from you, Shane. Thank you for your time this week. Thank it's you for your energy. Pleasure. Good. And... and No, please. After you. I was just going to say, top tip, you mentioned behavioural economics. If, if people want to read a, a book that will make them smile, they have to read the Rory Sutherland Alchemy um, on behavioural economics. It's brilliant.
Yes. Well, anything that's got Rory Sutherland on it is equally brilliant. But yeah, really nice recommendation for when you can't listen to a podcast, Shane, you can get yourselves in front of a book. So we'll call it at that point. Shane, thank you very much. Thank you to everybody to listening in. If you do have any observations or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us both on LinkedIn, um, which is maybe how you found us. You can also find us on Apple, on Spotify and on Google podcast platforms. And you'll find us at www.podcast.com. Dot co.uk. That's it for another episode. We'll see you soon.